All right. If you can find your seats, we're going to get started here this morning. Y'all can stay and talk after. No, I'm joking. <laughs> you do. I know you do. And I love that. I love that. I wouldn't want any. I love that you guys stay in fellowship and. Oh, it's precious. It's the way it's supposed to sound. Beautiful, beautiful sounds of uh, the flock gathering and loving on each other. And, you know, I want to encourage you all, when you see somebody you don't know, uh, go up and hug them and love them right where they are. We don't play church and we don't play Christian, right? We need to be invested in each other's lives here. And that's what the Word of God calls us to. So, and if you don't like hugs, just be like, hey, throw that hand right out there and (laughs) stuff. Some of you are like, germs, but (laughs) open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. God's been bringing us on this beautiful journey through this book. Um, You know, last we left off with God's plan for salvation as we began to see, you know, this idea that he foreknew in verse 29. That's going to be very important because we're going to pick up on that and even in chapter 9 as we get to there today. But he also then explained uh, that he predestined, or as we know what that means, it means predetermined, right? And we talked about last week, Revelation chapter 13, 8, where it says that uh, before the very foundations of the world, right, the book of life was written which means names either had to be in it or out of it. And then we read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, that says that names are blotted out of the book. Well, to have your name blotted out, your name must be in the book. So I think, you know, just keeping things simple. I'm a simple man. We're all simple people. That's what Jesus asked us to be, Bereans. And so we began to see that after predestination, or in this way, predetermination, he then did something called us, right? And I don't think that's a stretch for us. When we read the gospel, Uh, What did Jesus say? Did he say, you need to do Jesus plus this and all these other things? Or what did he say? Come, follow me. Really beautiful and really simple. Sometimes when folks come up and say, Pastor, I'm really not sure how to reach out and evangelize a lost and dying world. Uh, You've heard me say it before. one One of the most beautiful, simple things you can do is let them know Jesus loves them right where they are. Not that they've arrived. Not that they have to somehow be something they're not. Because God's the one that does the saving and God's also the one that does the sanctifying. We just need to be willing to come broken and just as we are, right? Well, he says, come. And so after you tell them Jesus loves you, you say, come. Come unto him. Don't draw men and women unto ourselves. We draw them unto Christ. And then after that, what happens? We see justification. It's a legal term. Justified, just as if we had never never sinned before, excuse me. And then after that, we've already been given the promise of this, but we wait in hope for the coming when we're in heaven face-to-face with Christ where we receive our new glorified bodies. What is that called? Glorification. He's already started the process in us, but we'll receive the fullness of it. And uh, friends, I don't think we have to wait that much longer. I think we're really right there. I think it is amazing how close we are. If you're following current events, eschatology in the Bible, 27% of your Bible is eschatology, by the way. Uh, we are living in the last days. So what do we do with it? Do we turn around and panic? Do we worry? Or do we occupy and be about our father's business? We're about our father's business. So that picks up where he has us. And so he's kind of just laid that out. And, and remember, Paul was a, a man just like you or I. He's a real man. He had real feelings. And now God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives this. He lays it down hot on him and says, here, Paul. And Paul's response is this amazing passage, really, 31 through 39, where he comes out and he declares the fullness of God's love, the fullness of God's plan for him, and how he just experiences so much joy and excitement. And it's almost lighting that fire in us again as born-again believers in Christ. And and if you're here today and you are not a born-again believer in Christ, if, if you are not aware of this, this is your guarantee. This is your hope. This is what awaits you. And as Jesus would say, come, follow after him. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, just as you've overheard here, Lord, I'm so blessed, God, by the way that you instructed Paul to share your heart, your character, Lord, your love, that we can learn more about you, God, that, that we can come here and open your word and discover, Lord, just, oh God, just 
moments and glimpses of what it's going to be like in your love and your unending love, Lord, that you have for all of humanity, Jesus, and your children, and how you desire a relationship and, and all the things that you want to, to set us free with, Jesus. God, thank you for your holy word. Thank you that we can sit under it. And thank you, God, that hearts are changed because you are the author and finisher of the work. You are the one that transforms. And God, we pray and ask, make our hearts ready here this morning. Make them fertile. Even if it means you have to, you know, move some things around in there, Lord. God, have your way in us here this morning. We ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Amen. Verse 31. So after hearing that good news and the plan of salvation, God then turns around and says, what? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen, amen, and amen. You know, just let that marinate for a minute. No matter what you're going through, you know, if you've, you've had a change in employment, a loss of a job, a diagnosis, whatever might be going on in your life right now, just allow that to penetrate your heart. Allow that to, to break those things down and respond in who can be against us. Nobody. No one. That's it. That's our study this morning. (laughs) What else can we say? How great is that? I mean, if we ended on that, friends, would we not walk out of here blessed? Better than we came in? But there's more, right? He has more for us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He says, if, if God, turn around, the father gave his only begotten son, for you and I, for the remission of sin, if he was willing to do that, what won't he give us? What won't he give us? Now, this isn't a faith and prosperity gospel. This is better. This is better than that. This is love. This is our needs. This is God saying that he's invested in our lives and that just as he sent his son, he also sent the Holy Spirit as a seal, sealing us and living with us and penetrating our hearts, our minds, our soul, and he is our strength. He's everything. He's everything for us. And he says that he gives it freely. It's not out of, out of a response of I have to do this or I have to do that. He's not a, an absentee father. Oh no, he's the best dad ever. Because everything he does is all based on a system of grace. It's not what we deserve. It's better than what we deserve. It's better than what we could hope for. It's everything. And the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now, that word can stumble some when they say, oh, elect, election. I I don't have a problem with it. I think it's a good word. Did he not call? Did he not elect? Did did we not read in Revelation 13, 8 again, and Revelation 3, 5, that before the foundation, there was a book, a book of life, and everybody's name was written in that book? So did he not call us all? Praise Jesus. Are we not all then to respond? So he says, who can bring a charge against God's chosen, if you will, God's elect? This should be great, great encouragement. If if you're struggling with something, if there's something in your life right now that you're saying, Lord Jesus, I need help. Whatever it is. Again, it could be medical. It could be, you know, addiction. It um, It could be marital. It could be fill in the blank. It could be a job. Maybe you've lost a job recently. Maybe, maybe you're having financial hardship right now. Any of these things. What is God telling us here? Who can bring a charge? Why would he say that? Because when we go through those trials and tribulations, don't we feel alone? We often feel alone. And don't we begin to listen to that liar, that deceiver? Those are lies from the pit of hell. You're not good enough. You're a bum. You know, I'm paraphrasing those. Little, you know, I, I, I got a Rocky Balboa in my ear sometimes. You're a bum. You're good for nothing. You know, the New Yorker in me, the Philly comes out. Right? That's what I hear. And then I go, but who am I in Christ? You see, because all of that's an identity crisis. I'm a born-again believer in Christ. I'm a son, your sons and daughters of the living God. That's not something he gives and takes away. You know, we're all adopted children into his family. Jew and Gentile alike, so far that he even goes into Galatians 3, what is it, 3.28, and says, look, Jew, Gentile, no race, male, female, none of that. 
All things in Christ Jesus. That's your identity. You're identified by Jesus. That's who you are. You're sons and daughters of the living king. King of all kings. Lord of all lords. Changes everything, doesn't it? No matter what you're going through, when you know your father in heaven is there and he's interceding for you, what's overwhelming? What's too hard? What's too difficult? Is, is your God not big enough? Is your God not strong enough? Is your God not faithful enough? So why does the enemy turn around and try to deceive us? Why is he a liar? Why does he want it? You know why? Because he doesn't want us to glorify God for who he is. Because God deserves all the glory and honor just because he's God. If it was nothing else, because he's the author of love. Not because he even redeemed us. We didn't even deserve that, did we? But he did it because his love is unending. It's nothing we can understand in this world. There's nothing we can compare to in this world to know and understand the love of Jesus Christ. Some of you might have had earthly parents and, and maybe your earthly parents weren't, um, weren't what you hoped they would be. Maybe they didn't love you enough. Maybe mom or dad didn't love you enough. Maybe you felt like you didn't get to grow up in a Christian home where you would have had the opportunity to receive the Bible and the study and the teaching and the encouragement. And because you read your Bible, when you get to passages like this, you, you struggle. Lord, how is that possible? Because I've never seen an example of it. I mean, this is real. This happens. And people struggle and wrestle with this. How is this possible? And then we, we pray to God, soften our hearts. We receive him as Lord and Savior. We go through that, who are we now? We begin to learn. He begins to show us. We read his word. He confirms these things in our hearts, our hearts and our minds, our souls. He gives us a new spirit. And we start to realize that we don't need to believe the lies of the devil. That he has no power over us. We have nothing to do with him. As the archangel Michael said, Jesus deal with you. You are no one to us. We don't battle. We battle against flesh and blood, our own conscience, really, more than just the enemy. Just think about that. Who is the one that justifies? Well, look here. It says it is God who justifies. It's God that does that. He's the justifier. That's a legal term. He is the one that's just as you've never sinned before. He gives that legal precedence upon you. He's declared it in a court of law. His court, the only court that really matters, not the Supreme Court that tries to redefine God's word, but the true court, God's court, where all decisions will be made for the eternal, whether you'll spend eternity separated from him forever and ever in what? In hell, or you'll spend all of eternity with him in heaven and paradise. But it's our choice because God is the one that does the justifying. Praise Jesus. Aren't you glad it's not based on our works or our strength or our abilities? He wants to encourage us. He says, who is he who condemns? He asks the question, Paul, who is it then? Who is it that's really condemning you? Who even has the right to condemn you? He's like, how dare someone try to condemn you in Christ? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes what? Intercession for us right now. Your depth of your prayer goes to God our Father and he is interceding at the right hand of our Father. Standing and or sitting and depending and he's literally right there based on your needs. And think about that. Isn't that what he did when he was physically manifested 2,000 years ago? When he was on the earth, did he not do the same things when the disciples would go into a trial? Remember they were going to go out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and he says go out there because they were going to crown him King John 6 and he says no, go. Because he was trying to keep them. He actually put them into a trial to protect them from idolatry or from being out of God's will. So he turns around and he tells them to go into the middle of the sea. They're in the middle of the sea. What does Jesus do? Does he go up there and go, hey, watch this? No. That's what we would do. That's what we would do. What does he do? No. He turns around and he begins to pray to the Father. He prays for their strength. He prays for their help. 
He prays that they wouldn't be, you know, just blown like a reed shaken in the wind, but that they would find their foundation and strength in Christ Jesus and that they would occupy, they would stand. If our God, who is physically here manifested, if he went away to pray like that as an example, as an illustration of what to do and what he's doing for us right now, why wouldn't we find hope in that? It, it, would, be, it would be wrong for us not to see that God is an encourager and he's, he's interceding for us. He says, who shall separate us? Beautiful verse. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He then breaks it out for you, just in case you needed additional information. Because like I said, maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Maybe you didn't have a, a loving mom and dad. But, but he says, I am. He says, I am a good father. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And I want you to understand, nothing will ever separate you from my love. Isn't that what we long to hear, even on earth? Isn't that what we wanted from our, our, our own biological parents, our mom and dad, to just, just unconditionally love us? Parents, today, you have that ability to do that with your children, to unconditionally love them. Agape, love them. How about your wives, husbands? Are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Husbands, you'll stand before Christ and give an answer to that. And wives, are you pressed into your husbands? Are you their helpmates? The greatest of all these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 was what? Was love was love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, that's the idea of lack of clothes because of need, or peril or a sword, even martyrdom, what will separate you? Nothing. As it is written, and he reads, Paul here quotes, excuse me, Psalm 44 verse 22. For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Well, that doesn't sound super reassuring, does it? If you're paying attention, you're still awake here this morning. You're reading that and you're going, what? We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That is not good. But what is that speaking to we're overcomers. That's what he's saying here. And he, just in case anybody misses it, he brings it out in verse 37. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors. So we, are more, we have more than just victory. It's not just enough to have victory. We have more than just victory. We are conquerors through him who what? Who loved us. It's, it's always about Jesus. When we run into trouble is when we take our eyes off Jesus and we put them on ourselves or, or quite Honestly, we can put them on our spouse or our children or somebody else. Our eyes belong on Jesus. Can you, married couples in here or those about to be married, can you look at your significant other and say, I love Jesus more than I love you? That's biblical. Can you look at your children and say, I love Jesus more than I love you? That's biblical. But that's hard, isn't it? But that's discipleship. That's walking by faith and not by understanding. That's walking by promise and not by sight. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, just in case we're not getting the point, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, any other created thing, all of creation, the enemy, the devil, lose for himself, a created being, a fallen angel, he says, any other created being shall be able to what? Circle that in your Bible. Separate. Nothing can take you out of the loving arms and hands of God. That's why I believe it's very clear that you can't lose your salvation. Because if you could lose your salvation, then something can what? Rip you and separate you from the arms of God. Does that mean we don't blow it? No, we blow it. I blow it. But I don't lose my, my salvation. I might be in error. I might be allowing sin to separate my right relationship. But I'm never ripped out of the hands of a loving God. Never, ever. Neither can the enemy, neither can your conscience that can betray you, neither can your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your lips, your heart, nothing. While it may betray your emotions, it can never do something to the point of separating you from a loving God because God means what he says and he says what he means 
And again, for us, that's foreign today. Because maybe we've had marriages where somebody ran out on us. And we have a hard time with understanding how are we supposed to trust again? And, and yet you want me to trust a God that he's the invisible God. I can't see him. But this is, this is the exact opposite of what the culture says. And usually that means it's right. If it wasn't enough that it's in the word of God, it's opposite to the world. Isaiah chapter 5. They would call evil good and good evil, right? It's upside down. He says he separates us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, think about Paul. He's speaking to Rome. You have Christians there, but you also have Jews. Now, the Jew up to this point is like, really? Really, Paul? So God loves everyone that way, huh? And he doesn't give up on them, really? Well, Paul, in case you haven't seen... Um, you know, this is past 80, 70, right? Or sometime within that, that area, right? Which means the temple's being destroyed, which means all of Israel's being kicked out of Rome here in a moment. Everything that they would, obviously this might've been written before, but you get the point of that there's something coming to Israel that they wouldn't have expected because they thought that Jesus was originally coming to do what? To set up his earthly kingdom. To overthrow what? Rome, because they had been in oppression and affliction well before the intertestamental period, even when they came in the land. I mean, weren't God had given them, you know, over the Canaanites and everything, but even Saul, their first king, first Samuel, what did he turn around and do? You know, he turned around and didn't follow God's commandments and, you know, destroy the king that was practicing idolatry. So they've been under oppression for thousands of years at that point, 1,100 plus years, easily. And so think about this. These are real people. This is what they would have been thinking. What about me? What about Israel? What about the Jew? Well, Paul's going to dedicate chapters 9 through 11 to the Jew, but for you and I as well. But, but he's going to explain, hey, you're adopted children. It's not as though this is all for naught, because I imagine somebody that's Jewish might be sitting there going, what, is the word of God not for me? Can you imagine? These are real people. So you know, what, what did they do, Lo? What was, the, what was the sin of Israel at that time? They had forsaken or rejected Messiah, Yeshua, right? Jesus, that, that was the sin. He says, I tell you the truth in Christ. He says, I'm, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's saying, even my conscience and my spirit are one in this. Galatians 5.16 says the conscience and the spirit wage war. He says, but even in this, there's no battle. He says, it bears witness. He says, for I, well, excuse me, let me back up. He says, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, verse 2. Did you notice that with me? What just happened? Paul just had us on the high of highs, right? Man, we're like up there. We're like, praise Jesus. We're conquerors. You know, we're, we're seeing the love. Our identity crisis is being mitigated. We now realize we're sons and daughters of the living God. We're seeing the power in that, the joy in that, the love in that. You know, nothing can separate us from God. Check, check, check. All right. Amen. Awesome. Who doesn't want to be a believer in Jesus Christ after hearing that? All the promises for the follower and believer. But then there seems to be a little bit of an emotional shift here because he's talking about Israel and he knows Israel's what? They're condemned. They're going to be eternally separated from God and he loves them. It didn't even explain that when he was in Acts and he was making his way back to Jerusalem and he got to Jerusalem. Two different times the Lord gave him an opportunity, he gave him an audience with the Jewish people first, and then even with the Romans that were there with the Jewish people. And what did, so what did Paul want to do? Each time he wanted to declare Christ crucified in the gospel. He so desperately wanted his brothers and sisters to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior so that they could be in eternity with Paul. He loved them. You know, we heard Aaron this morning as he was up here and he was sharing his heart about what God had given him in Jeremiah. And he talked about this moment where he was praying for, you know, his dog and some different things. But then the Lord began to press on his heart and says, are you praying for your brothers and sisters the same way with the same intent? Are, are you praying for the body of Christ here with that same heart, that same intent? And, and I would turn and ask that to all of us this morning. Are, are we praying one to another? You know, where we 
God said, don't forsake the gathering of the saints. Where, where, we, get, where we gather together, this is our home. Not earth, our home's in heaven, but this is where we gather together to encourage one another. There's no coincidence you're here. There's no accident. He draws in the personalities, the people, the, the whole thing for the encouraging. For what? For the work, Ephesians 4, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That, that's what it's all about. But he's brought us all in not to just sit in our comfortable seat where we, I will say, first and second service, a little bit. You all have, I'm watching some folks change seats. Some of you are moving around. Sometimes I can, I can almost tell who's here and who's not here by looking out because I know where a majority of you generally sit. And there's nothing wrong with you keeping your seats. That's great. I kind of look to it and I know if they're not there, okay, boy, I got to pray for them, checking on them. Are they Okay. I kind of know who's in the back row. I got my back row posse. I know who's back there. I generally know who sits up front, and I know who's in the middle, right? Y'all, you know, first service is the same thing. Y'all got your own seats. I got some, you know, people that are newer. They're kind of moving around, figuring out where they like, you know. But are we investing in the lives one to another? Are you staying in your seat long enough to actually meet your neighbor next to you? And, you know, are you willing to cross over the aisle? I mean, there's this big divide. I mean, I know you guys get caught up in a bridge over here with the East Shore and West Shore, and I know that goes way back, but, you know, we got a five-foot row. Cross over. Cross over that bridge, too. That's ridiculous. But, I mean, nonsense. Great food over there. Great food over here. I think you get the point. Are we investing in each other's lives? You know, this, this, was, this was something that grieved Paul, right? I mean, he says he was in continual grief and sorrow. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. What's he talking about here? He, he's saying, you know what? Lord, if it meant that I could be accursed and that all of Israel would be saved, then I would be willing to be eternally separated so that my countrymen could be saved. Wow. I love you all. I don't know that I could say that. I'm, I'm just being real. I don't know that I could say that. I love you all, but I, I don't know. I'd like to think I, I, could, I could say it, but I mean, what I mean is I'd like to think I could believe that. The only other person in the Bible that I read that said something similar is Moses. Exodus chapter 32, 32, right? He said something very similar too. He, you know, when Aaron had gone and the whole scene with the golden calf and them worshiping that, and then God coming down and obviously, you know, saying what's going on and, you know, they weren't worshiping or they were worshiping all right, but it was an orgy of horrible things were going on there and they were worshiping this calf and, and God, you know, Moses says, well, now I need to go up to God and I'm going to intercede. I'm going to intercede to God on your behalf. And so Moses goes up there and he begins to say, God, you know what? Judge me and let them go. Wow, that's a real shepherd. That's an under-shepherd heart. Now, both of these folks, what, what did God tell them? It's not for you to do. He says, you know, I'm going to bring that judgment on those that have deserved it, not those that don't deserve it. And the only person that I see in all of Scripture that did this and actually fully carried it out was who? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus did this for you and I. Right? This is my country, according to the flesh. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, they too are considered adoptive children, right? The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, he's now proceeding to say what has followed them, that it was the law, it was the service of God, it was the giving, it was all the things that they were brought in and under. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy as I read the rest of this passage. We're going to read about it. Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. What promises? We'll look back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7, he tells us, when the, well, let's look down at verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, 
nor choose you because you were more in number than those or than any other people. For you were the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your father, speaking of the Abrahamic covenant. And the Lord has brought you, what? Out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Just think about that. God's a promise keeper, isn't he? He's a promise keeper. Every single word in the Bible is trustworthy. And every single word in the Bible is necessary. Every jot and every tittle. It produces something inside of our hearts. We can't always see it. It's supernatural. It goes in and it has the ability to change the heart in ways that we can't. We might want to help others. But often the most sanctified thing you can do is sit down with somebody and open your Bible and just read with them. That and a cup of water, as Jesus said, right? That and a cup of water. You can turn back to Romans. He's saying, look, what about Israel? Look, at God had given all this to Israel. To whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over the eternally blessed God. If you're looking for a passage that specifically talks about Jesus as being God, please direct them to Romans chapter 9, verse 5, because there are those out there that are trying to say now the word of God, never, Jesus never says he's actually God. It's a new movement going on in our area, by the way. It's in this area. I've heard it from somebody that came in and was struggling. Uh, and, and this is what they were saying. This is, this is, there's a small sort of cult type thing going on in this area right now where they're, they're trying to say, well, Jesus really wasn't God. He, he, he came in humanity and divinity, but it wasn't the same divine nature as God's divine nature. We are living in the last days. We really are. There is such an attack on doctrine and such an attack on God's word. And either you have people not teaching any of God's word or they're teaching half-truths. And half-truths are still what? Full lies. Exactly what we saw in Matthew chapter 4 when the devil went up and he began to give a half-truth to Jesus. And so faithfully, Jesus did what? He drew him right back to Deuteronomy and said, no, this is what the word of God says. And so what did the devil do? Did he just quit? No, three times. He did the same thing. To finally he realized he's not getting anywhere. That's why we have a sword. It's called the sword of the spirit. This is our, our offensive and defensive weapon. Pretty amazing, isn't it? We've been given this. How great it would be if every Christian read their Bible. How great it would be. I pray, I really do pray for one more revival where everybody's reading the word of God and being set free and being encouraged. You know, God is being very long-suffering. But we really don't know when that's going to end. Because it's well overdue, friends. It's well overdue. We're already living the days of Noah. But we shouldn't be fearful of that. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Well, he says, look, Christ came who is over all, praise God, the eternally blessed God, there he is declared, amen, so be it. What is he also saying? He's saying, look, think of the spiritual pedigree for all of Israel right now. For those that are hearing this. For all of Israel. Their heritage. But wait a minute. He called them adopted children too, didn't he? And then in chapter 8 of, of what? Romans, he said what? He said, we were adopted too. We're grafted in. We're all together in the family of Christ. And I love that. God's not the author of division. Let's move on to verse 6. He says, but it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. Just in case you wonder, because he's bringing this out, Paul obviously said, well, you might think maybe there's nothing that happened. He says, no, for they are not all Israel who are Israel. Wait a minute, that got confusing. They're not all Israel who are Israel? I thought Israel's a physical place. I understand Palestine's not real, and that's a made-up man's name that has been added a couple centuries ago. But, but Israel, I mean, God's chosen people, God's chosen land. All Israel's not Israel. All Jerusalem's not Jerusalem. I, I'm not tracking. Well, think about it for a minute. We lose some of that when we have the translation. What does Israel mean? Governed by God. All of Israel is not what? 
governed by God. That's what he's saying. I could say it another way for you here this morning. Not all Americans are Americans. If I said that, you might say, what? And I'll say it just as God would say it, kind of just as he did here. Not all Americans are patriots. And then you'd go, oh, okay, Pastor, I, I see where you're going with this now. Well, think about it. That's what he's going to spend, really, in the rest of our time today, to verse 13. That's, that's the point he's going to be making. Why? Because he's going to explain why there's this division of the seed. Why, why some believe and why some chose not to believe. And because they chose not to believe, they, they were not counted as part of that seed. But they were given free will. And they rejected Messiah. That's what he's, he's going to be, you know. I, I mean... Look at us in this country. I mean, we come from such a Christian foundation, a Judeo-Christian foundation in America. I mean, our forefathers, not only that, but the pedigree we have in this country, our constitution, the land of liberty, our soldiers that fight, men and women on the front lines for you and I to be able to open our Bibles here, to be able to read, to be able to be safe, to be able to have security, prosperity, and liberty. That is what the United States of America was about. It was not about oppression. It was about escaping oppression. It was about standing up to oppression and affliction, not denying it. It always existed. It was European. And, and, and now we see our country and some of our politicians. I mean, we have politicians right now that are actually standing in their podiums and they're, they're anti-Semitic. They're literally attacking Israel. They're an enemy even stepped on Israeli soil. And they're attacking those people. And yet they're our allies. They're there to help us. And we're there to help them. But why are they so against them? Why do they want to attack them? I, I don't want to say they're demon-possessed. I think that would be unfair. I don't know them. But God did tell me to be a fruit inspector. And you judge them by their fruit. And the things that I'm seeing today is, is that rather than bringing people together and unifying people, we have a country that's very torn apart. We have a country that there is so much infighting going on, so much destruction. We have, we have socialist propaganda being, being generated as though it's new. And we have a youth that doesn't know history to realize this is nothing new under the sun. There's an old saying, history will, will repeat itself and those that don't know history will be doomed by it. Jesus told us in the word, pay attention. Look at the signs. Don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant of the days you're living in. Friends, the best is still yet to come. The best is still to come. He says, it's not that the word of God didn't have an effect. He says, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. He says, Abraham was a Gentile. He started the nation, but... You can't say, well, my daddy was Abraham, therefore I'm saved. No different than your child in your home can't say, my daddy's such and such, I'm saved. No, it's an individual choice, and it was accounted to him by righteousness, by faith, right? That's what it is, faith, excuse me, his righteousness was accounted to him by faith. That's what I meant to say, forgive me. In Isaac's seed, they shall be called. What is that about? Well, remember, if you remember from reading in Genesis, you know, 2110 and what have you. It says that Isaac was the child of promise. Write that in your notes so you, you kind of understand if, if somebody should bring you here and say, what's going on? He, he's talking about Isaac being the child of promise. But there was another child, remember? When they took matters into their own hands and they weren't waiting on the Lord. Remember that? Ishmael. And what was he? Well, the Bible tells us in Genesis 21.10 and Galatians 4.28-31 that he was the child or the children of the flesh. And he's symbolic for that, what he stands for and how it's, it's real. And there's a choice here. He says, the children of the promise are what? Well, we'll back up to verse 8. Read it again. That is, those are the children of the flesh that are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. He's explaining us the dichotomy, why there's a separation. There are those that believe and those that choose to reject Christ. That's what he's telling us here. You know, they may all physically be in Israel, but they may not all be governed by God. That's what he's communicating here. And I don't think that's hard for us to understand. This could be a church, and there may be Christians here, but I would be ignorant to think that everyone sitting here is a Christian. And that's not insulting anybody here. I thought, about it. you're like, great, pastor, that feels good. No, I, I, 
what did he say? He wasn't, you know, when he originally said there will be wolves among sheep, he was, he was speaking to the unbelievers. But if I, when I was teaching that through Matthew and we teach that through Mark, it was when he was sending the disciples out. He was sending that to his, his disciples. He was saying that to believers that there would be unbelievers, wolves, in other words, out there, okay? But then he also said there'd be wheat and tares, and he gave parables of that, better, better example. And when he said there would be tares among the wheat, he says, but don't worry about taking the tares out right now. You know, we don't have to, you don't need weed control. He says, ultimately, there will come a time when we'll gather up all the tares and those will be burned in the furnace. And the wheat will remain, right? He says, don't concern yourself with that right now. He says, you, you scatter seed. That's your job. You're, you're seed scatterers. Some water, some plant, but to God is the increase, right? So, we can see that he, that's what he's kind of saying here. He's saying like, you know, in verse nine, for this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, now he's moving on generationally. He's going after Abraham. Now he's going after, he's going to move past, well, Isaac and Rebekah. And he's going to go to Jacob and Esau. Here's where he's going to move to the next generation to give them another example. He says, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born. Who is that? That would be Jacob and Esau. You remember this. Esau walked, what? Contrary to God that way. Jacob, even though Jacob wasn't perfect, he was the seed of the covenant, right? The covenant, he was the seed of the covenant that way. So it says, yet being born. Now, this is interesting. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that God preordains people and babies and how they're going to behave? That's not what this is saying, actually. What this is saying is that, and it's going to go back to this, it's explaining foreknowledge. In verse 29, we already read that God foreknew. I think that's great. My God's omniscient. And so is your God, if you believe in Jesus Christ. I don't have a problem with him being omniscient, but I also read that he gives free will. So what happens here? What he's saying is, is that much like we would look in a rearview mirror and we can see what's happened, God knew that these two children, while still in the womb, weren't going to be the same. How many of you here, I don't need a raise of hands, but you have more than one child. If you have more than one child, you know that each child behaves differently, and yet they came from the same Mom and dad, or they're part of the same family. They all have their own personalities, right? And as parents, one of the fun things we get to do is we come back and go, hey, this person really seems to enjoy math or science. You know, boy, maybe they're going to grow up and be a, you know, a teacher or, so, you know, whatever it is, or a mathematician or whatever. Or this person really, boy, they're such a good artist. Enjoy. And then you meet the people that, you know, they're ambidextrous. I'll call it that. I'll, I'll use baseball analogies or football or I'll go back to my comfort zone a little bit more. You know, they get up to the plate and you know what? They hit the ball this way and they say, you know what? Just because I can. And they hit it that way. What are they doing? They're, they're both left, right hemisphere brain. They're not only visual spatial, but they have auditory capabilities. They're inclined. Beautiful. There are people like that. Some of us aren't, you know, happy that they're like that because maybe some of us aren't, right? That's the flesh. Let's just crucify that. Let's just get it out of us right now. Crucify the flesh. Let it down. Maybe I'm okay. No, I'm just goofing with you. But the point is, is we see people that are really good like that. And we're like, boy, how do they do that? They're really good at music and they're really good. At, and then they can also come and they can solve algebra equations and, and all this other stuff. And it's just, you know, everyone has a predisposition how they come out. And parents, we get to see that, don't we, with our children? So some are kind of, and, and if we're, we're doing our job as parents, we try to guide them, right? We don't push, but we guide them. Okay, you seem to like art. You say, maybe we put you in an art class where you can maybe develop those skills. Or maybe you really like math. Let's, let's get you to get tutoring with a math professor or teacher. You know, that's happened here. That's happened here. You know, uh, one of my sons was getting help. You know, I mean, it, it's awesome. It's awesome when you can see that predisposition. Well, that's what God's talking about. He's talking about a foreknowledge. He's omniscient. He knows. So he knew that Esau was going to turn around and go, you know, hey, look, I really don't care about my birthright. None of that stuff matters to me. I want the soup. Give me the soup. You give me the soup, I'm good, right? Some of you are like, soup is good. You know, you're like, what's the birthright really matter, right? Well, it was not just the physical. There's also a spiritual aspect to that too he was giving up, right? So for the children of not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to the election, might stand, according to their choosing, right? Not of works. He makes clear that this is not of works in any way. That even before they came out of the womb, they were still in the womb. 
But God knew what they would do. God knew. He says, but of him who calls. Now, this is interesting. Who's the one that does the calling? God. There's a sovereignty there. But there's also a free will. Because we have a choice to how do we respond to the calling, don't we? Are we available? Do we serve in our church? Are we, are we available to help? Are we available to serve our neighbors? Are we available to love? You know, we make ourselves available. Isaiah, what is it, Isaiah chapter 6? Here I am, Lord, use me. As Isaiah the prophet was being called. It says, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. He foreknew. And again, we shouldn't be surprised at that because verse 29 says, for whom he foreknew. He also predestined, predetermined or predestined. Which means it's all part of the plan of salvation. It's all tied together. This, is, this shouldn't be a, a difficulty. As it was written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. No, God's not saying, I hate Esau. Remember the spiritual example while he does say that. What is the spiritual example we're talking about? Israel and the fact that they can have one seed going one direction and one seed going the other direction. The seed of promise and the seed of flesh. That's the context of what we're studying. So what he's saying here is he's saying the one that turns around and walks towards God, towards Christ, that doesn't reject Messiah, right? I love. He says, the one that rejects me, I hate. What is the fear? The fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom and or knowledge. What does fear mean? Look at Proverbs 8. Fear means to hate evil. Look in your Bibles. Go to Proverbs chapter 8. You don't have to turn right now. But when you get home, go to Proverbs chapter 8. And look, if we're going to say the fear, then we need to define what fear is. God defined it in his word. He said fear is a hatred of evil. That's the context of when he uses that. So to love God that way, we are to hate evil. And God, being the author, ought he to hate evil as well? So this is what we see here. This is what he's sort of revealing for this. Revealing to us, sorry. Those that follow God, he loves, and those that reject God. Right? And now we're going to stop here, and we're going to kind of transition to communion. I have to ask the worshipers to come up and uh, here in a moment. Uh, but you can come up now. Go ahead. Worship team can come up. Yeah, please come on up. But... We're going to be reading verses 14 through 33 next, next week. I, I want to encourage you all, uh, please read ahead. But I want you to think about two things as you read ahead. I want you to think about, because people sort of sometimes come back and maybe struggle with this passage. I want you to think of things that are completely different. One is, what is mercy compared to what is your right or what you deserve? If you think about this passage in that context, it will make tons of sense to you. Because God will say, I have mercy on who I want to be mercy, you know, or who I choose to have mercy on. That's undeserved favor. How can he be a righteous God? Because after all, that's what he's going to, that's the, what Paul's going to be tackling in verses 14 through 28, really, is he's going to come back. Well, how then can you say, you know, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Paul's going to answer that right in verse 14. Well, how can you say that? If God is showing mercy on who he wants to show mercy, well, certainly does that mean there's a favoritism going on? No, and that's because if there's a misunderstanding in what's fair, God is never unfair, but God chooses to show mercy to who he shows mercy. Do you see the dichotomy again? Do you see the difference? Fairness is what we all deserve, and God is always a fair God, but we don't really want fairness. Fairness... <laughs> as we read in Romans 3.23, would yield you and I going to hell for all of eternity. What we want is mercy through who he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior to set us free. And being with that, we ought to turn our focus now to communion. Because God said, do this in remembrance of me. Do you see how the Lord just made it so simple that when we put our eyes right back on him, it all makes sense. And we can worship and we can praise. So as, as we get ready to um, take communion here, I'd ask that we all wait and take it together. But go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll pick up with verse 23. I'd like to ask the ushers to come, and then let, we'll partake together.
jealous for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me Oh, how he loves us so Oh, how he loves us How he loves us so He is jealous for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory and I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me Oh, how he loves us so Oh, how he loves us How he loves us so us so oh how he loves us how he loves us so he loves us oh how he loves us oh how he loves us oh how he By the grace in his eyes If grace is an ocean We're all sinking So heaven meets earth Like an unforeseen kiss And my heart turns violently Inside of my chest I don't have time to maintain These regrets when I think about The way he loves us oh how he loves us oh how he loves us oh how he loves yeah he loves us oh how he loves us oh how he loves us oh So, oh, how he loves us, how he loves us so. as he, remember he was not in that upper room with Jesus and the disciples, the 12 apostles. And, uh, you know, he says in verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Through direct revelation, through the, the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ himself, he spoke to Paul. And he said, Paul, this, 
you know, I want you to do this and I want you to explain why this is important. I want everybody to understand what this is all about. It's, it's not about this bread, unleavened bread, and it's not about the juice or the fruit of this cup. It's about Jesus Christ. He said, this do in remembrance of me. It's always been about Jesus. He says, but I want you to understand what this was symbolizing. What, what he would go through on Calvary for you and I, that we could enter into this beautiful, precious feast with him, that we memorialize it here this morning. We're going to partake together, so... He said that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, just think about that for a minute. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken. He says, for you, for me, do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. understanding, he says, in the same manner, in the same conviction of heart, he says, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Without Christ's blood, there would be no covenant. We're washed, cleansed, and healed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He said, this is my blood. He said, do this or this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of this together. He said, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, he says, you're proclaiming the Lord's death. You're proclaiming my death, he says. Until he comes speaking of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. Because he's coming again. Are you ready? Are you willing? Are you all in? Then let's stand and pray. Father, as you've overheard, we've come here, Lord. We've God, we've studied your word. We'd opened your counsel. We've read all that you had for us here, Lord Jesus. We saw the great heights, Lord, that you took Paul on and you desire us to be on in regards to our spiritual birth. That we are born-again believers in Christ. And as born-again believers in Christ, Lord, nothing will ever separate us from your love. Hallelujah, Lord. Lord, we never could ever deserve anything like that. Thank you for your mercy and your system of grace. Thank you for your unconditional love. And thank you that you call us to remember that, Lord, no matter how difficult it is, when our eyes are on ourselves, Lord, we, we blow it. But, God, you've made it so simple that we can turn and look to you. And, oh, Lord Jesus, we are the apple of your eye. And it's through you, Lord, through your strength that we prevail. It's through you that we overcome. It's through you that we have victory. It's through you that we are conquerors. And it's through you that we are no longer victims of a devil or a principality or power. But in all things, Jesus, you are sovereign. You are love and in control. God, I would pray right now, Lord, as we as we leave here today, God, that we would remember that we would take and, Lord, we would celebrate communion with friends, God. That we would tell them your gospel of love and what you did on Calvary, Lord Jesus. And what you're still doing in hearts all around the world today for those that are yielded and humble. Lord, I pray, would you bless your people here today and would you keep them, Lord? Protect them in all ways, Lord Jesus. Heal them. I know there are those here this morning that are going through cancer, Lord, through 
foreclosure of their homes, for problems with their jobs, Lord, for finances, for um, addiction. God, I pray, please, Jesus, right now, heal and restore what the canker worm has eaten, Lord Jesus. God, make your face shine upon your people. We are yours, Lord, and you're ours. God, be gracious, Lord Jesus. Be gracious. God, I don't know if you know how to be anything but gracious, Lord, but be gracious. Lord, lift your countenance upon your people. Lift it upon us today. Lord, give them a perfect peace, Lord Jesus. And I pray, God, you would write your name upon them, that, Lord, they would know who they belong to and that they're blood-bought. They're yours, Jesus. Have your way in them and protect them and give them travel mercies and bless them, Lord. Bless them, Lord. Bless them, Lord. I ask this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you all. I love you all. And uh, if the snow does come, I pray that it's light. Check the website tonight about 7 o'clock. Uh, prayer will know if we're going to have corporate prayer based on weather. But uh, God bless you all. I, lo I love you all. Leave today encouraged and spend time lifting one another.